Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. We're still on hiatus, but Rodney and a crew from The Ready have been working on something shiny and new that we're pretty excited to share with you. We are. Last winter, we started working on how to really partner with HR. You know, we've long been buddies with HR and our clients, but it's time for us to make an impact with and for that function because we know that it is wanted and needed. And as part of bringing that work into the world, I have been back in the booth with Ready OG and friend of the show, Sam Sperlin. We have been making a mini series all about the future of HR, and you're going to hear episode one in a minute. The future of HR. What is a series like that going to cover? Yeah, so it's going to cover really like a vision for where HR can and should head that is backed by a lot of research and a lot of conversation with some of the most brilliant thinkers in the space over the last year. We are going to talk about how to convince stakeholders in your org so that you can have the buy-in you need to really get rolling with making the changes you want to make in HR. And unlike other consultants that I see out in the world who just provide you like a visual and a framework for what it could be. We're going to talk a lot practically about how to get you from level one through our maturity model, really starting where you are and making moves from there. I mean, you look at everything that's happened in the world over the last three years, and you can see how HR has been super duper busy. Yes. Um, But if you're not an HR person, if you haven't been in the eye of the storm, should you listen to this arc? What's in it for you in this miniseries? You should listen to it. If you're a fan of this show, of the Brave New Work show, there will be some overlaps in terms of like adaptivity and experimentation, but we cover in detail a lot of skills and capabilities that we've never talked about on this show. Like user experience design and contracting and how to think about decentralization. So I think even if you're not in HR, those are really useful skills if you just want to have an adaptable skill set. We are going to have really amazing guests, some of whom I'm a tiny bit nervous about because uh, I'm like a fan (laughs) of some of these people, which is going to be weird for me, but exciting. And maybe most importantly, I think for people who haven't worked in the function, hearing this series might give you a bit of a look under the hood at what's really going on It might help you to be a better partner with HR and also just to understand what their experience is, which might explain some of what you see in your organization. Got it. So this is the show that we want and the show that we need right now. And I can't wait to have a listen along with everybody else out there. Let's do this thing. Episode one, Jack, roll the tape. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our new mini-series that I have been preempting and hyping for like six months without telling you anything about it. This is The Ready's Future of HR. I'm so excited to start really digging in, really making jokes about this. 
You know me from Brave New Work, and I am truly thrilled to introduce my co-host for this series and my longtime buddy and collaborator and ready OG, Sam Sperlin. <laughs> hey, Rodney. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry. That was very radio announcer or like basketball announcer. Like, I feel like I'm coming out <laughs> on the court now and there's like jock jams playing and I'm bouncing a basketball. Yes, I'm Sam. Ready OG, I guess, which is a new title, but I've been around for a minute here at The Ready working on all sorts of different stuff. I am just a general purpose transformer I'm doing a little bit of everything. General purpose transformer makes you sound like a machine. <laughs> So far, I'm a basketball player and now a transformer machine. Like, let's just keep it going. But does he know about the future of work, folks? Let's find out. Mm. Sam, what are we going to do? We're going to make a series. Why? Because we are talking to HR people. We are working with HR people. We are intentionally and purposefully transforming HR organizations because we give a shit and because you all need help and because... It's a very exciting space to be playing in, and that's what we're going to talk about on this mini-series. But first, yep. we're going to do a checking question because yeah, that's are. how we do it. You gave me the honor and the pressure of selecting mm-hmm. the check-in question no pressure. Uh, today. No pressure at all. So, Rodney, what's your favorite physical activity or exercise nowadays? Obviously, it's swimming. It's only swimming. It will only ever be swimming. I love swimming. I swim two or three times a week. Today likely will be my first open water swim of the season. Getting out of the pool, going in the lake. It's going to be cold, but I'm psyching myself up to do a mile or two. Are you concerned about sea beasts when you open swim? You know what, Sam? I wish that you had not brought that up because I am, (laughs) and it is irrational. So the sea beast that is most concerning to me is an alligator because they get you in a death roll before they drown you. And there are, at the moment, no alligators in the state of Virginia, and there are only 50 fatal alligator attacks on swimmers or maybe people in history. I know that because I'm paranoid. And and knowing even that much- Sounds like you've done some research. I've done a lot of research to quell my anxiety. And Uh when I'm out in a giant lake by myself and I can't see, it doesn't matter that I know those things because I am still terrified of the sea beasts. I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, You'll be fine. You'll be fine. I'm sorry I asked. That's all right. Enjoy your open water swim today. It's good for me. What about you? What's your favorite? (sighs) Not swimming, although I'm having to do it more and more. I've enjoyed our swimming chats. Honestly, some of the advice you've given me, I think, has really, really helped. Uh, My actual answer is probably skating, ice skating. You know, played hockey my entire life. Don't really do it a whole lot anymore. Kind of hung up the old hockey equipment due to concussions, which is now why I find myself swimming more than I really want to as I explore the world of triathlon. But uh, yeah, skating is fun. Yeah, we need that giant brain to be fully working. I need it fully working as well. Awesome. All All right. right. We're checked in. Let's talk about the future of HR. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Why HR and why right now? I feel like we could have done lots of different things for this mini series, for the work that we've been developing. Why are we doing this HR thing? Well, a lot of reasons. So one big reason is because it feels to me like the problem space in HR is quite clear. Like you don't talk to a lot of HR leaders that are just like, the way that my function is structured and resourced and operating is just ideal. 
and I would change nothing if I had the ability to. Like, generally speaking, there's a lot of room for change there. Generally speaking, that function hasn't evolved. Like, it hasn't had a big movement the way that particularly you see, like, in tech spaces have taken opinionated perspectives on large-scale transformation. We haven't really seen the same thing in HR in, like, 20 years. So that's one thing. It's just, like, there's opportunity. Two is I grew up in HR. I was in HR. I was a business partner. I was like a fractional head of HR. I was like people ops for a small company. So I have a lot of heart for HR because I know what the pain of it is. And I also understand why people like me and most HR pros that I talk to got into the space, which was to do something that was quite innovative and quite people-centered. And then, you know, people like me got out of the space because there was very little room to actually do that. And then the last big thing is like, it's so, so cross-functional. So, you know, a lot of how we think about work and how work should go is sort of not honoring the existing org charts and instead thinking across silos and thinking about how to bring cross-functional roles together to do great work. And HR just tends to be kind of like the dumping ground of the organization where they're like, Mm. hey, you guys have like benefits, but also legal stuff, but also now hybrid work, but also um, like the future of work and also coaching and also talent acquisition. And it's just like, oh, does is this about a person? Cool. HR, it's yours. So there's like fertile ground in terms of cross-functional right. teaming. A lot of surface area for for doing some some interesting stuff there. I am curious because you might not carry the same particular perspective mm-hmm. on HR as me. Mm-hmm. How have you generally encountered HR in the one gajillion transformation projects that you've done? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right. I don't have the personal experience of kind of coming up through HR. So my interactions with HR have been primarily through our transformation projects. And it's been a real kind of tale of two cities with HR, I feel like, in lots of the projects that I've worked on. On the one hand, very commonly, there are people. Like they are like, they care about people. They care about the experience of work. They want it to be better. Just like good people over there. And also, I have worked on transformation projects where we essentially had to hide from HR. Like yeah. we actively tried to like, let's not get on HR's radar. As soon as HR knows we're here, it's going to be a kind of a shit show. So let's just like stay away. And I've had both of those experiences. I don't, I, I, have you had something similar or am totally. I kind of uh, out on a limb here? Okay. No, totally. I mean, look, the experience I've had a lot in projects, the trajectory has been like, okay, HR and I are best friends. Okay, now HR is like, go do stuff to other people. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, hey, if you all like modeled some of this and were really like in the work with me, then you could be capacity and you could carry this forward. And like HR could sort of scale and spread what's working from within. And they're like, I'm busy, shut up. Also, we're fine. Go help someone else. And then often I like don't really see them again (laughs) during the project. Right. So that's like a pretty common experience where we sort of go from being partners to trying to figure out the architecture of the project to like not really collaborating that much. Yeah. Frenemies in some capacity. Right now, actually, I'm kind of having this experience for the first time where we actually do have some like real partnership with HR at the client. And it's it's really nice. And they're taking seriously this idea that we have to kind of like change our own shit if we expect (laughs) anyone else at the organization to do it. And it's just very refreshing. And I'm hoping that this this future of HR 
effort that we're putting so much time and attention into unlocks more of that for, yeah. for our clients. And, and it's just better. I mean, selfishly, it's more fun on our side, kind of as consultants to have real partners in HR and not feel like we need to play hide and seek. Yeah, totally. And it's also like, I think that something happens also in projects where someone who's not HR will be our buyer or sponsor, and then they'll kind of bring HR into like quarterback our project. And I think that puts HR and us into a really weird dance where it's like, then they feel responsible for like our behavior and how we're working and what we're focusing on, et cetera, et cetera. But like, they're not really in the work with us. They don't really have control over us because like we do what we do and they feel accountable to someone else. And it just creates this weird triangle that I don't think is particularly helpful to anyone where they feel like they have to report to the sponsor about work that they're not doing and also they don't really control. And that's just a bad dynamic. You know, it's like all good decision-making architecture. I'm like, what if the sponsor and the partner and the doer were all the same person and we just work with them and it was a CHRO? (laughs) Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, let's, I think it's going to be really fun. Do that. I'm convinced. I'm okay. on board. Right so on. Tell, me, tell me a little bit more about the vision here. So what is the future of HR? Are you going to give away the, all the secrets in this first initial episode? So there are so many things to talk about, but we're not going to talk about all of them today. And I don't want this to feel like an infomercial. But effectively... The real lever point that we want to see HR people get to is to organize differently to respond to a very specific and very common tension in HR, which is this. In typical HR functions, usually you have an HR business partner that's sort of quarterbacking for the COEs and shared services and like the functional areas and beholden to internal clients and getting priorities from HR leadership. That is a garbage spot to be in. It is basically impossible to be successful. I've done that job. It's really hard, even under the best of circumstances, because you just have a lot of competing agendas. Incentives are not always aligned between the internal client and your HR leadership. And effectively, like you have to be the middle person in too many things. And what that ends up looking like is responding to the urgent and punting the important. And what I mean by that is I sort of joke that like when I worked in a big HR department, we always said like the best day was the day that the phone didn't ring because any time the phone rang and like we were getting sued or something fucked up had happened in the building or whatever, everything else got put to the side. That was attended to. And basically, if it was attended to properly, you didn't get any credit. If it didn't happen at all, you didn't get any credit. And- You didn't have the time needed to do something that was forward thinking or more about changing the organization or modernizing ways of working or doing stuff that was really strategic to the business. So the point in this is like our vision, first and foremost, is to change the way that work is working in HR. So you're splitting apart the persistent ongoing functions that are never going to go away and that should be optimized We should be using AI and tooling and experimentation to make payroll and onboarding and workflows ever better. And we're separating out the more seasonal, more strategic priorities, organizing around them cross-functionally, and doing that as mission-based teaming. And we call it the Hollywood model because a very easy mental model for this is the idea that a movie studio never goes away. 
groups of people come together to make movies. They have only the roles that are necessary to make that movie. And when the movie is made, the people go home. And so the idea here is that these ongoing functions are like the studio and these prioritized missions are like the movies and that we're running HR in this way that separates out these two very different and often competing types of work. Dang, yo. <laughs> that's that's cool as hell. And I'm sure there are all sorts of intricacies in here, but I guess what is preventing HR from operating this way already? I mean, like the mm. HR mo- or the, the Hollywood model obviously exists in, in Hollywood. So like, why did we kind of have to develop this? And why is this just not the state of play naturally? So first of all, I have no idea the answer to that question. It's a great question. Sure. And here's why it's a great question is because we did so much customer research and talked to so many really smart HR people about these ideas as we were developing them. And no one was ever like, no, that wouldn't work here. Or like, no. Everybody's like, right. yeah, that. That's the thing. So it is kind of like, I don't know exactly. I mean, I think if you look at the OS of HR, it is designed for a more compliance-oriented function, even if on its face or in its purpose statement, it says that it's not. I think that the way that things actually work and are resourced and are compensated and are policed points people to the more compliance direction. But what's interesting to me, here's my more fun non-answer to your question. Uh Almost everywhere that I've ever been in HR, they actually do do this sometimes, Mm. but they don't do it perpetually. So like when I worked in HR, basically from Thanksgiving until the end of February every year was comp season. And comp season was incredibly manual. Obviously, I worked at a bank. It was very important because people there care a lot about getting paid money. And... Mm -hmm. Essentially, a lot of other work just kind of evaporated. It was just kind of like, it's comp season. And now we just all of a sudden don't do all of this other shit that we do for the rest of the year. And we don't tell anybody we're not doing it. We don't ask permission. And it just sort of goes away because it's comp time. And I'm guessing in most cases, everything is fine. It's not like the company is destroyed every year during comp season when HR is focused on other stuff. Totally fine. And in that four-month season or whatever it was, we tended to work super cross-functionally. We worked super globally. We shared information constantly. We did things like daily stand-ups, which we never fucking did any other time of the year. And I'm using a personal example, but I see examples like that all the time. COVID response is a great one where it's like HR teams do tend to be the first responders in the organization And when shit really hits the fan, they do tend to work in more of a mission-based team. What they're not doing, though, is codifying how that works, getting rid of all of the crap so that they can do it more. They're not often learning new ways of working while they're accomplishing that mission that could serve them in the long term. And they're not getting all of the benefit from it, but they are having the lived experience of doing it. So we know teams do this. We know that mission-based teams are going to be cross-functional in nature. We know that they are going to be non-persistent but important. We know that most of the roles on a mission-based team are going to dedicate a significant amount of capacity. This is not your old-school, shitty, side-of-desk, project, tiger team nonsense. Right. So, Sam, the question that I keep getting in conversations is, where do missions come from? And my question to you, as someone who's done a lot of mission-based teaming work, though not necessarily in HR, is... 
Where do missions come from? Where would you point in an organization to find like the first batch and backlog? Hmm. hmm. Well, obviously, I would just go knock on the CEO's door and ask them what we should be doing, and then just do whatever they say. Oh, perfect. Uh, is yeah, that tracks. pretty simple, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would cast as wide a net as possible to understand the potential landscape of missions at first. And what I yeah. mean by that is obviously HR has a backlog, whether it's just living in their minds or actually written down somewhere of things they would go do if they had the time, money, capacity to go actually do that. For sure. There's a backlog of potential missions. The rest of the organization that needs things from HR, whether they know those are kind of HR responsibilities or not, also has things that they would love to see get done. I would do a little a mini exploration of trying to get those things out. So mm-hmm. what would finance love to see HR do? What would product love to see HR do? And just kind of go around and gather that as well. And between those two conglomerations of potential missions, I would then kind of put it back to HR to make some decisions around some initial initial missions. And I would not sweat it too much around what's the first batch of missions that we're going to do. I Even from far removed, I can see the rabbit hole already of making sure we select the perfect missions. And if we don't get it right, then we're going to be screwed, which means now we're going to spend six months like ranking and stacking these potential missions, and we're not actually going to do the mission. So let's take a swag at it, as you like to say. Let's pick a couple. Let's maybe prioritize things we actually think we can do and build some self-efficacy and some momentum in actually accomplishing missions and use that to tackle some of the gnarlier ones down the road. Yeah. And I mean, it feels so good when you get some momentum. It doesn't even really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter what you did. It's just going to feel great to be accomplishing something and learning new moves while you do it. I I sometimes say something that I think I believe 100%, and if it's not 100%, it's quite close. Something along Mm -hmm. the lines of, like, momentum is the most important force within an organization. 100%. If you can do something to keep momentum going on something, do that thing as much as you can. Because once something dies or the momentum goes away, it's almost impossible to get it moving again. For better or worse too, like really bad things also get momentum and they will just keep going as well. But in general, if you're trying to like make things happen in an organization, figure out ways to get momentum going and then ride that inertia as long as you can in a a positive way. Yeah, dude. I mean, I always say like, you can't steer a parked car. You got to just get going. And I think, you know, in in what you said- You're a toddler at that point, (laughs) sitting on your parents' lap, just playing, playing, driving. Exactly. And what you described in terms of how hand-wringing people can get around something like the selection of missions is pretend driving. Like it is sitting in someone's lap and being like, what would it be like if we were on the open road? And it's like, well, we'll never know if we stay here. Yeah. The empathy that I can bring to that just real quick is that in a lot of organizations, you get kind of one crack at the new thing. Yeah, dude. And And then somebody punches you in the face. Then it's then it's done. So like, I'm only going to do this one time. Like, let's make sure it's the right thing. The, yeah. the op model that you're talking about here, though, is not about doing a set of missions one time. It's right. about like actually accomplishing missions, spinning down that team, starting a new mission, 
accomplishing it, spinning down that team. And it's an ongoing thing. You don't have to get it 100% right the one time. You'll get more at-bats, as they say. Totally. And like in your description of mission selection, there are just a few things that I want to highlight because in the whole idea of like start the way you mean to go, how you kick them off and pick your first ones is a really good place to start disrupting old habits. So I can hear the thoughts of my HR leader homies out in the world right now going like, well, shouldn't we know what all the missions are before we choose? And then shouldn't we have like a filtering process for choosing? It's like, okay, I know, I know what you want to do. Just hear us out. That first of all, what you actually can do as a filter on what to do is a very good filter because (laughs) HR is just as guilty of this as lots and lots of other organizations, except that HR tends to be even more thinly stretched and even more under-resourced than other organizations to be like, let's talk about our most perfect ambition rather than doing our available move. And it's like, just getting out of that is a really interesting shift. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there, and and I I won't distract us too long. But there's like, often in many organizations, there's such a disincentive for talking about things in a very realistic way. Like, we have to, if we're not shooting for the moon, like, what are we doing here? And it's can really spawn some unhealthy uh, situations. Well, it's like how people talk about strategy. It's like... Let's spend six are we, are months whisper- making the are we most. Whispering now? We're whispering because <laughs> nobody should. We don't want anybody to know that this is true. Yeah. But it's true. Just between- it's like we spend six months making sure we're using the word optimize instead of maximize on bullet four A for a strategy yeah. that we can't fucking do. And it's like yeah. we can apply those muscles to anything because they're very well yeah. developed. So we're not going to do that with mission based teaming. Two yeah. is you use the phrase that is the most. HR phrase that I would like stricken from the record of all time, which is make sure. Like I feel like HR's entire identity, and this was absolutely true in my tenure in the field, is make sure. We actually can't make sure of something we haven't done yet. So all we can do is get going and six months of trying to make sure that we're doing the right mission comes at the cost of being able to do three missions in that period of time and find the fuck out. Yeah. So we're going to do that yeah. instead. Yeah, I, I love that because I'm sitting on this hypothesis, which I will be really curious to see if it shakes out, that the most impactful mission that many organizations will do, let's say in their first 18 months, is something that wasn't even originally on their radar. That it was mm. only uncovered by yes. an, a different mission that actually made us realize, oh, this is the other thing that we really need to go do. And if we hadn't got started, we never would have lifted up that rock that that really important mission is hiding under. Yeah, it's so true. And it's like no amount of staying in planning will uncover that. Yeah. It'll just show yeah. you more it, rocks. It won't show you what's underneath mm-hmm. any of them. Yeah. Got to go. Yeah. Got to go turn over some rocks. So... Obviously, this is the way of the future. And here's the thing. There's really broad recognition around this. There's a lot of research. There's research coming from McKinsey. There's research coming from Josh Burson, who is like a very brilliant thinker in the HR field, that basically articulates all of the conditions and ideas around the Hollywood model. But what we, I believe are bringing to the table that's exciting is a bit of like the pill in the hot dog. And so I want to talk about this because what we don't want to do 
in projects with HR functions is the same old thing where we like show them an end state and then we make them a project plan and then we draft them a bunch of communications and we're like, ta-da, now you're different because that shit does not work. And I have been like the victim of that particular crime. So Mm -hmm. the hot dog is mission-based teaming because everybody's like, fuck yeah, I want to organize around the work and I want to have dynamic teaming and I want to like add and shed roles as are needed, et cetera. But the pill is the ways of working. So inside that mission-based teaming, we're going to do things differently. We're going to have different meetings. We're going to have chartering. We're going to do decision-making. We're going to be really clear about decentralization and centralization. We're going to do disciplined experimentation. You've done a ton of that kind of work. Tell me what that brings up for you. Or like, how does that land with you? Well, what a, the first thought that I had is just a realization of how weird I am because that also all sounds like hot dog to me. Um, I know. I knew like hot it dogs would. and hot dogs. You're just like, that's <laughs> no hot dog with there. cheese inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just described a better hot dog, which I'm super excited about now. But I think my other reaction is that we have done this in other projects and it always yeah. works really well. It's bringing somebody into a different context, a different environment is the perfect time because they're a little bit destabilized to also introduce other stuff. You're not trying to introduce new ways of doing things while they are very firmly ensconced in the way they've always done things. It's like, hey, we're in a brand new sandbox here and I'm going to give you some new toys to play with that are specifically designed for this sandbox. It's Uh going to be great. And you kind of have permission to get dirty and play as opposed to you know, when you're in your kind of quote unquote normal day job, you probably frowned upon to be throwing sand in the air. Yeah. These metaphors are going all over the place. All over the place. But I think it's really true. And I think it's true at like a local and a meta level, which is like at the mission level, part of why I like the idea of casting a wide net and potentially starting with something that's a priority for the business and organizing cross-functionally around that. And when I say cross-functionally, I'm including like end users, whoever is needed to make a solution that is functional in the organization. I think when you start with a really well-admired problem that's like in your backyard, it's a lot harder to clearly see it. And also it's likely a lot more intractable or you already would have fixed it. And I think (laughs) that often starting with something that we have a little bit of removal from is the move because it gives us like, like you're saying about the sandbox, like it gives us the freedom to kind of start with a blank sheet of paper and not just bring all of our baggage and all of our assumptions to the new project. And then within the new mission, I've been using this analogy all over the place. It's like going to camp. And it's like when you bring cross-functional people from home to sleepaway camp, Basically, no one gets their way. Like, no one gets to have the exact breakfast cereal that they want. And now we all are playing by the rules of the cabin and the rules of the camp. And nobody gets to be like, well, I don't make my bed at home. Because it's like, well, guess what? Here at this camp, we make our fucking beds. At at make a bed camp. (laughs) At make a bed camp. (laughs) We make beds. We make beds. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I think that it gives people the permission to put down their baggage, it gives them the permission and actually a very explicit invitation to not show up as a representative of their function, but to show up to be a member of this team, which might sound small, but honestly, that's a huge flip because usually in cross-functional teaming, 
everybody just comes to the one meeting a week, repping the demands of their home team and boss, fighting, and then going back when no decision is made. And this is very much not that. Which creates this experience, what I have seen multiple times, where when you're just representing a function, people seem to think you can send anybody from that function. So I've literally been in meetings where like six of the seven people have never been in this meeting around this context before and are just sitting around a table looking at each other because nobody actually knows what we're there to do. They're just repping whatever function. Exactly. And at like can't make a bed. If you come from the finance function, you need to come with like the authority and the opinion to do the job. And I told you this story in a different context, but like I was coaching a mission-based team at a client and the guy who came from finance was the finance leader. And he basically showed up to the mission-based team like a real butthead. And like, he just wanted the team to sort of report to him and give him status. And he wasn't coming with the deliverables that the team needed in order to progress the projects. And about three weeks in, a fairly junior member of the mission-based team was like, can we have someone else who like wants to be here and like wants to do this job because like you're holding us up, man. And we only have three months to do a really hard thing. And it's like that shit, again, that does not happen at the home team. That kind of stuff only happens at camp. But I think when we're in this space of mission-based teaming, the mission comes before anything else. Like the mission comes before functional agendas and it comes before competing priority. Like we're here to do a thing and really what we care about is doing that thing and we will remove the blockers or ask for them to be removed for us that might prevent us from accomplishing what we need to. And like that's how it should work. Yeah, and that's fun as shit. It's so fun. It's fun to have a really clear purpose on a team and we have the people here that we need to actually do it. We're not getting bottlenecked by waiting for decisions outside of the team unless we really have to. People want to have impact. People want to do great work. And kind of stepping outside the bureaucracy and into this mission-based team is a great way to, to feel that again. Yeah, it's really exciting. So like, how did you all actually develop this? I'm having visions of you kind of like in a smoky room, locked your door, came out three weeks later. And it's like, I have it. I have cracked the code. <laughs> I'm guessing that's not how it went down. But if you tell me that's what it was, I'll be very excited. It's just like a beautiful mind situation. Yeah. In yeah. a guest room. In Has the anyone playhouse. seen Rodney? Like, where's Rodney then? Where's Rodney? <laughs> and then suddenly you emerge. There were a lot of really terrible drawings on like napkins and in random notebooks. Thank you, Alicia, for helping me out of my own way. Um, the truth is, we knew that this was a space we wanted to explore. We had a lot of ideas about how to go about it. And then Matt Bassford, who's really been like the whole sort of product owner of this effort really structured this like a mission-based team. And I think it was in the Redis history, we have never done mission-based teaming like this with dedicated, isolated resources, with actually saying no to a bunch of other things so that we could do a really great job and kind of get everything we wanted. You know, we often get our clients everything they want, but we often do that at the cost of like things that we think are important for ourselves internally. Yeah. And this was the first time that I've experienced at the ready where we were like, we are going to treat this like a mission-based team and we will have roles coming in and out of it. We will understand 
very clearly what it is we're trying to do and by when. We will do it in feedback loops with the market. We did a ton of customer discovery and we really took a product mindset approach to the whole development. And that's how all mission-based teams should be. Like no mission-based team should be in a dark, smoky room coming up with something without the intel of the market or the end user or the consumer or having those roles like really integrated into the development of the work. And so we basically have been like jamming that way since the beginning of this year and keeping the people who saw the napkin sketches who are out in the world apprised as we're doing it, like testing things with them, getting their really hard questions and then bringing them to you on this podcast to answer. (laughs) And it's been very joyful. I mean, the thing that's hard about it, which will be the thing that's hard for everyone everywhere for all of time is blocking out noise and not getting distracted and staying focused on what we're trying to make and not ever compromising on quality and also holding the hypotheses lightly and steering as we go. And like, it's all the things, but that is how we've been rolling this year. That's awesome. I'm wondering... Is there anything you all, or maybe just, well, you can speak for yourself, not your teammates on this. Did anything you learned about mission-based teams through kind of doing it the right way in developing all this work? I mean, the biggest things for me, God, honestly, Sam, I like, I did, I learned a lot. In some ways, it was really kicking the ego. Because, you know, I've been a consultant for such a long time, and I'm really used to showing up feeling like I know some stuff and taking a product approach to something like to, to really doing service design and content design, et cetera, et cetera, is like, I was the SME on this project. And obviously I had a lot of creative input and I had a lot of strong opinions and I didn't get my way on a lot of things. Like ultimately the end users appetite desires, what they saw as being practical, ruled the day, even over what me as like a very deep HR nerd thought was utopian. And that was a really big learning because I think a lot of times when you're doing service development and when you have expertise in something, it's really easy to spend too much time in a vacuum without getting continual feedback and adjusting as you go. So that's been a really big shift. And then the other big shift for me is just like, teaming in a way that's this dynamic and where there's just been this much action because we have produced a lot of content. We've produced a beautiful maturity model. We created like a downloadable report and an assessment. And like, there's a lot in like new website, like there's a lot of component parts. And I just had to not know the things. Like I just had to not know all the things about all the things and basically recuse myself from like all of the parts of the mission that aren't mine, which is most of them. And that is not something that I'm super accustomed to doing or that I super love doing because I'm interested Mm -hmm. in it and I want to know and I want to like see how the hot dog is being made every single day. And in proper dynamic teaming, that's not how you do it. You know, (laughs) like you do your part and then you gracefully step off the set so that somebody else can come and act their scene. And I, I learned a lot about that in the last six months. Yeah. I, you know, as someone who has not was not on that mission-based team, but you know, would occasionally see glimpses of how it's going and now that it is kind of coming into the world, I'm really impressed with what you all pulled together. I think you're right in saying that this is the first time or one of the first times where we've really 
kind of eating our own dog food with this stuff, yeah. with mission-based teams, doing it the right way. And I think the product kind of speaks for itself in like the quality of what you all have created so far. So I'm super excited to see what happens as this kind of gets out into the world. You know, whatever role this little uh, podcast will play in that, I will be happy to be a part of it. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for doing this with me. It's so fun. Yeah. So this is this is going to be a mini series, not just this one episode, although that we covered a lot of ground in we did. this. So we sure we've did. got future episodes coming up about talking about how to get stakeholders on board with what we're talking yeah. about here. Talking to experts and asking them what we effed up yeah. in in this. I'm guessing probably probably some stuff. It'll be cool to probably hear from some them. Stuff. Yeah. Probably, obviously. <laughs> I can't wait for that part. That's going to be it's going to be great. So between now and when you hear from Sam and me again, if you're all fired up and you are ready to get started on your own, feel free to check out the goods that we've put up at theready.com forward slash F-O-H-R. And also, if you're ready to hook us up with your CHRO or your HRBP or some other progressive, excited people ops person, holler at us. You can find us at F-O-H-R at theready.com. Send us your burning HR questions and we will tackle them in an Ask Us Anything at the end of the series. Thanks as always to Taylor Marvin for making us sound super awesome. This mini series is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. As for you HR leaders listening right now, let's change ourselves first. <laughs>